Welcome to The Pub. I'm Jillian Edwards, and this is my co-host, Rome Williams, and you're listening to The, the Pubcast. Pubcast. Jillian, what is a pubcast? Honestly, I don't know. But welcome. <laughs> so, we're part of The Pub, which is Wheaton's undergraduate academic journal, um, but now it's in podcast form for your listening pleasure. So exciting. Could not be more stoked. I couldn't be more stoked. In fact, you know who else could not be more excited today? Is Dante Givens, our first guest for this season. Do we call yes. it a season for Glass House? Is that Absolutely. Our theme? I feel like we need to insert some air horns there. Okay, that then being said, <laughs> give a warm round of applause in your classroom or wherever you're listening to this to Dante Givens. He's a senior at Wheaton this year, an English writing major with an art history and sociology minor because one major wasn't enough. Long list. And that being said, he will be going for medieval studies after graduation. Dante, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, um, I'm from Chicago, from the west side of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, so I grew up in East Garfield. Um, I've been writing since I was in seventh grade, um, started with spoken word. Um, and then um, when I got into high school, got into more form stuff. So stuff like haikus and, you know, all that good form stuff. And um, then I started writing fiction in college. Um, so today we will be looking at a fiction piece I wrote. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah, but first off... Can you make us a haiku right now? <laughs> Off the top of my head. Off the top of your head. No, I wish I could. All right. <laughs> well, we tried. <laughs> um, so you submitted two pieces for Glass House last semester. Um, the first one was an essay entitled Black Knights and Medieval Romance, an analysis of role, geopolitical location, religion, and physiognomy have in constructing racial otherness, as well as a short narrative entitled Lost in the Paradise of Nothing. Yes. Did I pronounce all of those words correctly? It was a lot. Yes, you did. <laughs> okay, work, great. Work. Um, so tell us a little bit about the essay you submitted. Yeah. What was kind of the inspiration for that? Yeah, so um, uh, last fall, I um, studied in Oxford, and I um, was introduced to a story. Um, it's a Middle Dutch story that was written in the, in the 13th century called Morin, and Morin literally is just more in um, Dutch, so um, more has a lot of different meanings, but it can also be, be inclusive of Africans beyond the Sahara. Um, but the story is about a black knight who goes on quest to find his father, um, a Glova, who, um, married, who, who basically goes to the Moorish lands, bears his mother, and then has to go back to Camelot to search for Lancelot. Um, and the whole narrative, narrative is about him trying to find his father. Um, I instead uh, took that narrative and I, I wanted to analyze the, the role of race within that narrative because there are several instances where um, individuals mistake him from a, a demon, they mistake him for um, for being the devil himself, or in, in, in the words of the editor, the foul fiend himself, and I, and I edit the role of, of race in that alongside another text, the Middle English text, um, The King of Taurus, in which um, the main character of that story is, is, is not described as an African, but he's, he is described as a Saracen, um, which normally denotes a Muslim, and he's baptized um, and in his baptism, he comes up white as snow. Um, and I kind of um, parallel the roles of race in both of those texts. Because Morton is a Christian, but he's also described as black as a, black as a raven. And he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't go through that process of being whitened. Um, the son of Damascus and the king of Tars, however, is described as black. Um, but he becomes white and actually becomes, and, and has a process of becoming Christian. He goes on a crusade um, alongside some of the Christians in the text. So, um, 
the text, the two texts themselves, the essay themselves, is 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 banking on the complexity of race in the Middle Ages, um, and I'm and I'm actually extending on my research now. Wow. Um, and as part of that, um, you're looking to go into medieval studies after Wheaton, right? Yeah. Is that kind of the same same grain of looking at how does race impact how we look at medieval history and yeah. how that's come to today? Yeah. Yeah. So my primary study is well, what I intend to study, I should say, is the roles and the ways in which, um, particularly, um. Africans are depicted both in iconography and in literature and in histories as well. So a lot of my research is looking at okay, how how does how can we rethink the ways in which the Middle Ages is a homogenous whole, right? Because that's not true. But we look at it and we look at it for all the diversity in which it has. Um, sometimes the diversity is, is black people. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's Muslims. Sometimes it's Jews. Sometimes it's Romanis, right? Um, and it's a variety of different people living alongside each other. Um, and my, my study will, be, will principally be black people, but I will be looking at other people as well because those are often the people that Europeans have the most contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, and, and one thing is a historical en- endeavor, but it's also um, um, an, an endeavor of rethinking how we in the modern day think of the, 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 the history of racism. Mm-hmm. We normally think of the history of racism as a thing that's, that was rooted in modernity, so rooted in people like Locke, people like Hume, right, people like, like Kant. Um, but... Um, when you have a, a more holistic analysis of race, you realize people in the middle ages, and people in antiquity, are thinking about race, thinking about um, what does it mean to be Greek, right? Um, what does it mean to be um, Roman, right? What does it yeah. mean to be um, to be Brit- British? And I think if we have a, a larger narrative of how race has developed, then I think we can have a more robust approach to how to to how to adequately um, attend to issues of race and racism. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. I've never thought of like taking yeah. that perspective and researching from that, um, like medieval studies. Um, how did you become interested in the medieval studies? Like, and like, was this piece a product of that interest? Yeah. So, um, I actually became interested. I took a class with Dr. Weber, Dr. Benjamin Weber in the English department. Right. Um, he's a great dude. Right. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> Sweetest dude on campus. But, um, he, um, I took medieval romance with him as a sophomore. So the sophomore, so literally two years ago, I took him to romance, and we read a lot of Middle English texts. So I learned how to read Middle English, and um, we um, we kind of got close from that class, right? We had some similar some similar mythological questions about history and about philology, uh, the, the history of language, and different things like that, and um, that kind of really sparked my interest in it. And I kept doing some research after that. Um, and then in Oxford, I had to write an, uh, this big essay, this, this essay, which is a product and which is an, which is an issue now. And um, I, I, I wanted to study race, but I also wanted to study middle wages. Mm-hmm. And then I had a professor who was just like, these are some texts that you can look at, right? His name is Dr. Thorpe. He, he, yeah. he, he teaches at Oxford and, you know, now it's shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, I, have, I had these two professors, one who is a, in a lot of ways, Dr. Weber, who is a pure medievalists who mm. literally just study medieval stuff. But Dr. Thorpe studies postcolonial literature, postcolonial theory, and he studied, you know, Middle English and things like that. So he's a he's a he's a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, these two individuals really helped to mentor me and, you know, this essay was the first step on a larger step um of what I intend to do. That's great. So how would you say that's with taking that step into your essay with looking at this, how does that relate to then the narrative that you wrote? Yeah. The Lost in the Paradise of Nothing. Yeah, so so actually the Lost in the Paradise of Nothing is me imagining um as a prequel to Morn. Mm. Right? So it's me imagining um filling in the gap of, of, of what happened in Morn's journey to find his father that's not explicitly within the, the Morn text. 
Um, so Lost in Paradise of Nothing is me, um, me attempting to, to, to have a scene directly before, um, well, at least a couple of weeks before, um, he, he, he bumps into Lancelot and, and, and Gawain because the, the narrative more in starts with him, you know, you know, fighting Lancelot mm -hmm. to a standstill. Um, so I wanted to say, okay, how do we, how can we, how can I feel the story in a little bit more? And Lost in Paradise of Nothing, right, it's drawn from this research I've done, right, um, to construct a more holistic story of, um, of Morn's journey. Wow, that's incredible. I love how you've been tying these, all this research together and, like, all these different pieces. But here's my thing. I'm busy con nature. <laughs> I am, I'm not an expert in literature. So with that, with, you've had so much research, so, so much research, so much knowledge. What do you find people misunderstand most about your work? Yeah, um, I think <laughs> people misunderstand. Um, they often think I'm trying to be anachronistic when I talk about race or mm. racism or prejudice or stereotypes and different things like that. They normally say, um, because they have ideas of race rooted in modernity, that um, those words didn't exist back then. Right? Those words weren't in existence back then. Those words came into the English language or the French language or the or the, the, the Italian language, right, um, in the fifteenth century. So how can you use those words to describe how how people are you know, um how people are being depicted in the Middle Ages? So I normally get accused of anachronism the most. Um and I also get be accused of saying, um, you know, just being a postmodernist, which I'm not really a postmodernist. I actually don't like postmodernism at all. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think that's one of the biggest difficulties is normally when I present my research, when I present my work to people, is they'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> black, people, black people went in Europe in the 10th century. And you know, like, no, that's not, that's not really true. But Yeah, so with wow. that as a flip, what do you wish people, like, knew most about your piece like what was the one thing you wish people would just grasp instantly i think they would they would grasp that um history is important to our understanding of literature and the development of literature that i think if we are better historians um that if we understand the history surrounding the ways in which literature and iconography is produced then i think we can have better understandings of um of how different races different people are conceptualizing um how people how people are different than them um, but if people don't understand history, people don't understand that even the words in which we refer to some countries, like when we think of the individuals living in North Africa named the Barbers, right? Um, they, they, don't, they don't get their name from themselves. They get, they, they get their name from a Greek word, which is barbarian, which mm -hmm. is non-Greek speaker, mm -hmm. right? But they call themselves the, the, the Amazir or some, some along those lines, yeah, yeah. or Ethiopians, right? Um, who, who their name derives from a Greek word as well, which means sunburnt or burnt by the sun, mm -hmm. right? Um, but when we don't have a historical analysis of how Greek people are interacting with Ethiopians or Greek people are interacting with, with North Africans, um, then we don't have a robust understanding of the ways in which race can develop, albeit using different language. Sometimes the language is savage, sometimes it's barbarian, sometimes it's Jena, sometimes it's Nada, um, and, these, and these different Latin words, which I definitely butcher. Right? Um, but, um, Me too. But you, <laughs> but you have this, 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 this really robust um, you know, um, history of what, what does it mean to be us, to be a people? Um, and that's normally not mapped on to what does it not mean to be you, right? Um, um, what does it not mean to be you, what does it not mean to be you? And that's not, that, that, that binary is sometimes, is sometimes beclouded in a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, it's sometimes a little bit more murky. Um, but I think if people would understand history, they can understand the murkiness of that. And then sometimes what are the parts and what we need to be critical and say, this is what it is. This is racist. Yeah, yeah. 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 
it's like the the comparison of like people like to think in black and white yeah um but there's also the gray area yeah but there's also still black and white <laughs> yeah it's like the, the, the it's like <laughs> what, it's a like, what a dichotomy <laughs> Um, so I want to I want to build off that. Um, so at the end of your narrative, um, you describe the protagonist as he's riding off um, towards um, I guess what you were talking about in your essay, um, and you describe him as a maiden with a seal upon her arm. So this is a reference to Song of Solomon eight six. <laughs> what does that mean? Why is that in there? Yeah. So the big thing in, in, in the moral narrative, the original narrative, is is that he just in England to find his daddy for his mama. Right, like mm-hmm. he has no love interest. It's not a romance proper, right? Um, it's not a romance proper. Um, it has, um, you know, some of the romance traditions and the romance tropes. But a key part of the narrative of, of at least a ton of of, of, of medieval romances is they found a maiden and they found love with a maiden. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, I wanted to supplement that. Um, but I also wanted to hint at that. Um, in the songs of songs, um. On the Canticles, as some people call them, right? The bride is described as black but beautiful, mm-hmm. black but lovely, and a lot of medieval historians have looked at um, have looked at the ways in which um, that narrative is used by different theologians, um, different um, scholars and thinkers in the Middle Ages to, to to advocate for blackness not being a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, for advocate for you know even if somebody is black, right? Um, that's that's Peter. I think it's um it's um Bernard of Claveau. Who makes the claim that Jesus is black because he takes on our sins, and if, and if, and if mm-hmm. black is the color of sins, right? Then Jesus is the blackest of them all. Uh, something along those lines. Gotcha. Right. Um, but you also have other scholars who who, who supplements it, like Peter Ablard, who says something like "black and beautiful" instead of "black yeah. but, but beautiful," and says, um, you know, you know, you know, she's she's beautiful, right? Because she's a bride of Christ. She's a mm-hmm. bridegroom of Christ. Um, and they have this very allegorical reading of the Songs of Songs. Yeah. And I attempted to, weave, attempted to weave that into how Morin is thinking about himself and thinking about mm. all, his, lo- his life as well. And the narrative, doesn't, I think, doesn't suggest that by mm. itself. But um, I, don't think the, I think the supplementary history can allow me to, 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 to kind of implant that into the ways in which I'm, I'm rewriting the story um, for a modern audience. 100%. I remember I took an OT with Buster, okay, freshman year. Buster's the best. Buster is the best. Shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> but we had we a whole unit on looking at Song of Solomon and then looking at and that that phrase black yeah. but beautiful and how is that translated in different ways and she you know went over this whole thing is how like it's more like the word but is also uses and in some places yeah. it also uses also or yet yeah. and so it's all these different ways you can look at it and it's through our interpretation of the yes. word that we get black but beautiful yeah. black and beautiful yeah. and how we understand that here especially as we look into the past coming to the present. So I would ask from there is just how does a, an understanding of medieval history of English writing, how does that inform your faith? Yeah, um, I think in a lot of ways, like, the more and more I learn about medieval history, the more and more I learn about medieval history, um, for, for better or worse, I, um, I, I, I have a more robust understanding of the Trinity. I mm. think that in uh, especially the Catholic tradition in general, but especially the medieval Catholic tradition, it's really Trinitarian. It's really rooted in the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, mm-hmm. by, um, which ghost is actually a word derived from um, Old English, which is really cool. Hey. Um, but um, you have this, this, this rich tradition of Trinitarian thought in the Middle Ages, and I think that oftentimes, you know, as evangelicals, we do have this pretty vague understanding of the Father, and we have this quite times, quite often, a very robust understanding of the, the Son, of Jesus. Um, but we sometimes neglect the spirit, 
Right. Um, so true. So um, true. And, 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 and just reading medieval literature and history and how they emphasize how the, how the, how the, how the Trinity is just that, a Trinity, mm-hmm. not as essential for our faith, that's really strengthened the ways in which I, 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 I think about my faith and I think about, you know, I do worship a God who is three in one. Um, and I do worship a God who, who, um, who, who, who exists in relationship with one another. And that's the central to in which the ways I want to practice my faith, mm. faith in relationship with, with other people. Wow. wow. I'm speechless. That's like <laughs> really cool. Um, and now makes me really inspired to study um, some more medieval literature and studies. Maybe I'll change my major. <laughs> Dante, have you, have you gotten to read The Forgotten God by Francis Chan? No, I haven't. Neither have I, but I've heard so many incredible <laughs> things about how it's looking at how we don't look at the Holy Spirit and, and like part of our daily lives. Yeah. So I haven't read it. I can't personally recommend it, but I can recommend to you based off of many recommendations that it might it might inform more of your idea and understanding of medieval thought and theology coming yeah. into today. Yeah. Um, Jillian, you've got a you got a pretty great question. I have um, a really important question which has been bugging me this whole time. Um, medieval studies. My immediate question, have you ever dueled somebody, and do you own a sword? <laughs> Our studio audience is laughing okay. as well. <laughs> um, so, I've dueled people in video games. Okay. Right? Um, that counts, that counts, I'm a gamer. I like the game, right? That's one of my pastimes, and a lot of my games are... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, they are games in which include Short and Shields, right? So I like <laughs> games like Death Gambits and Hollow Knight and Blasphemous, yeah, yeah. right? And games that um, require you to, to cut other people. Um, but I'm also a big Star Wars fan. So, oh, okay. So, so as a kid, I did have lightsabers. So okay. I yeah. did do people in that sense. But not one of those weird Fisher guys that have oh, the plastic yeah. swords. We don't talk about the weird <laughs> Fisher guys. <laughs> okay. Um, not a shout out. <laughs> we could delete that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cut it. <laughs> but, um, yes, I, um, I, I do digitally at least do with people. And um, while I don't have a, 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 a European sword, um, I do have a, um, um, one of the big horse, horse slaying blades from, um, from Bleach. So I have um that counts. That, that counts. counts. So I'll it's, take it. That's it's, more of a sword than I'll ever have. Yeah, so it's, it's like it's like six feet long. Oh right? what? <laughs> how heavy is it? It's like plastic. It's like plastic, right? Oh, okay, it's like okay. it's a it's a, it's it's a sword that Ichigo has and is okay. he's a main character from a, from an anime and he he has a sword and the sword is like twice as long as his body, so it's just Pretty, pretty Wait, if it's wise. six feet long and it's twice as long as his body, it's three, three feet, feet tall? tall. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> proportion in anime is is not you know great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny. I had a friend who graduated a few years ago. He had a sword on campus that he made himself, and got like in trouble with his RA because he had his like sword on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Very subtle transition. <laughs> Any advice for students studying um, English or art history here at Wheaton? Yeah, I would say um, really just attempt to take the classes that you think you don't like, right? Like I took medieval romance um, because it was my pre seventeen hundred requirement, so I didn't. I mean, I didn't. I didn't have any interest. In, I never heard of Arthurian legends, Arthurian traditions before I took the class, right? Um, I would say take the classes in which you think um, you might not enjoy, you might not like, um, or in which you think you you know um, might be interesting, but you might not know much about it. Um, and whether that's a class with Dr. Milliner, um, whether that's a class with Dr. Weber, or whether that's going to the theology department and taking people like Dr. McGowan or 
Dr. Calancis, mm-hmm. um, you know, even there's, there's medieval historians in the, his, in the history department, right? Dr. Hoffreiter and individuals like that, who I think, you know, offer classes in which we might not be super familiar with, but I think as people in the humanities, we have the, the ability to take these classes in which um, we, we, we go to liberal arts school. You can take whatever class you want, kind of, to be honest. So take those classes and, you know, whether it makes you uncomfortable or not, right? Mm-hmm. I think it might, it might spark an interest. At least that's what it did for me. I love okay. that. Getting outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. It's good. That is great advice. Yeah. All right. We got one last question. Close it out. Jillian, you want to you wanna take this? Do you have any great life advice or subsequently mediocre life advice? Great life advice. <laughs> mediocre life advice. <sighs> Speak now. Before I hold your piece. <laughs> I would say, I would say, um, great life advice is, Sometimes it's okay to learn on your face. Sometimes it's okay to, to fail and to, to realize that you're human. And whether that's in studies, whether that's in relationships, whether that's in writing, um, whether that's writing something and submitting it and getting rejected, right? whether that's um, writing a sentence right? <laughs> and then realizing the sentence is crap, um, whether that's what, whatever it is, I think, I think it's okay to, to really learn face down Sometimes I think there's a time and a place for that, and I think we need to have more room and more grace for ourselves in our process of learning and in our process of discovering who we are. I mean, we're, we're 20 years old, you know, 21 years old. We have the rest of our life in front of us, and you know, the thing of learning on your face when you're young is you don't break a bone, most likely, right? Um, um, so you can get up and dust yourself off and put on some witch hazel and go about your day. Shameless <laughs> plug, witch hazel. <laughs> That's a doctor recommendation there. Uh, Dr. Weber, the sweetest man on campus. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dante. This has been fantastic. Um, do we have a cool way to close out? Or are we just going to say, watch our next episode or else? Yeah. Or else. Be there, be square. Be there. Don't you forget it. All right. Thank you so much, Dante. Bye, thank you. <laughs>